0: Listeners to the Bibliophile Adventures. I am Michael from Germany. I am recording this second attempt at the Land Leviathan, and it is coming up to 11 o'clock here in Germany. We are sitting at my kitchen table, and instead of the usual uh, beverage, I've got here a nice cup of black tea. I'm feeling very British, and I have in front of me some notes. We're going to try this a different way. Uh, with some actual notes and preparation this time. I did a quick recording um, all about The Land Leviathan, which is book number two in the Nomad of the Time Streams series by Michael Moorcock. I gave it a shot and I listened to it again and I realized this is no way to do justice to that really super exceptional book. So if you have the courage and the patience to seek it out you might find that lost episode uh somewhere on the interwebs um but to be honest i really wouldn't bother it's it's not great and the reason is because a book like this you need to do it with a bit more get up and go you need to have a bit more energy and to be honest in the last couple of months i've had no energy i have been sick and tired and uh tired of being sick and Now that I've emerged from a month of hibernation, I would say that I'm ready to tackle this thing again. Actually, I'm not ready, but let's try it anyway. (laughs) So first of all, I want to give um, a time-honored shout out to another podcast, which is The Clockwork Dollhouse, uh, produced and presented by the wonderful Blue Stocking. I have no idea if she's still doing this podcast but hey, if you're listening to this, Blue Stocking, please keep on doing that podcast. It's great if you have the time. Um, she is to be found on Twitter, I believe, under the handle Clockwork Heart. Go follow her. So she already did uh, her first podcast about this whole series of books. It is considered by some to be the first steampunk uh, literature out there. And I would say, yeah, that's fair. I'm not going to argue with her. But I would say that it is, it's a style of writing that is obviously taking a lot from other places. And I think it was more about the literary moment where... I went back and listened to her episode again, by the way. And I really encourage you to do the same if you want to read this book and get a lot out of it. Because um, I'm not going to cover the same ground at all. She did a really good summary of the plot of the books, uh, which I tried to do in the last episode about the Warlord of the Air. And I think it was a mistake. So I'm not gonna like go through the whole plot again, which I sort of feel sad about, cause it's really cool uh, and I'd love to do that. But the reason is that I'm not the best at doing that. And also, you know what? There's so much other stuff that you need to talk about here. So let's just point out uh, very, very quickly that Michael Moorcock was writing in an established uh, tradition kind of all of his own um, he had taken over writing sci-fi stories and editing sci-fi stories very much in the pulp adventure tradition and uh, *Nomad of the time streams is also a pulp adventure and it's one of the coolest uh, kinds of adventures out there it's kind of like a war story it's got um, science fiction it's got time travel time travel that is totally unexplained uh, which is basically magic So it's kind of a fantasy story, I would say. And in the 70s, at the time he was writing this, um, sci-fi was kind of boring um, and very much kind of in line with all this, uh, yeah, let's call it establishment thinking and saying that everything is just going to get better and better because of technology, yay, technology. And Moorcock said no. He took it right back uh, to the early 1900s and imagined a future where the old tech was still prevalent and more or less actually I think if you kind of scrape the surface you'll see that this steampunk world by no means makes any sense and um, if you consider what technology was out there you know there's no automobiles for example but but they but they have atomic bombs in the end so this stuff in no way makes a great deal of sense until you get to book two and I think this is a cool a cool moment to mention. So, book two um, of the Nomad of the Time Streams is um, the American book. So, the first book was all about the British Empire and what would have happened if that had continued, and how um, how Asia would have basically gotten its revenge on the British Empire. So, there's a kind of sense of justice uh, running through all of these books, but it's it's an imperfect justice. Uh, there's a great review on Goodreads of this second book where the reviewer basically said, uh, summed it up, saying this is an alternative history where we go through all of the evils of empire and colonialism and racism, and but in this alternative world, it's payback time. And that's totally true. Um, in the second book, basically, the... Um, technology has been taken to its limits by this wonderful inventor, uh, who interestingly, I think, is uh, something like French-Mexican or something like this. Irish-Mexican, there you go. And his inventions, of course, it's a man, hey, sexism is still a thing in the 70s. His inventions have basically ended hunger and ended uh, scarcity and Uh, turned the whole world into a technological utopia. I kind of like the idea that it's a Mexican guy um, who says, hey, look, you can have my technology. Come on, just uh, do something good with it. So everybody's happy. Everybody is um, content. And then, of course, a huge war breaks out because everybody's so happy and content. And basically, civilization ends. And what strikes me on a second time round is actually this is kind of the same story as battle circle this is the same story as soster rope where technology has reached its high point you can do anything you can go anywhere you have no more problems and basically nobody likes it everybody's unhappy there's nothing left to strive for there's no challenge left and everybody uh, fights everyone else there's a huge apocalypse um only a few people are left and the people whose technology survives, they keep it secret, they keep it to themselves. Uh, that's actually the case in the second book of No Man of the Time Streams, too. We have a minority of uh, more advanced civilizations. There's one in India that's led by Gandhi, uh, there's one in Africa that's led by the uh, kind of Robin Hood figure, Cicero Hood, who's gonna come and take over the United States. Uh, sorry about that, guys, but, you know, you had it coming. And the only other technologically advanced uh, guys are kind of hiding out, biding their time down in Australia somewhere, it looks like, um, and just trying to avoid another huge apocalypse. But maybe they'll pop up to try to kind of stop one in the future. So in the land Leviathan, basically, uh, Cicero Hood is this African... He's a warlord. He's another warlord. There's always a, a warlord in each of these three books. Uh, this this warlord, he um, unites the African uh, nations, actually, uh, much along the line of previous African empires, which had existed, um, as far as my very, very bad research leads me to believe. And he basically assembles a huge navy first, and then he brings this gigantic tank to the USA, what's left of the USA, where, of course, slavery has been reintroduced and it's hugely racist again. And he basically conquers the United States and says, okay, look, all of you European types are going to be slaves now and the African-Americans are going to be in charge, but only for a year. And after that, there's going to be equality, okay? So you get to see what it's like for a year. I think it's a year in the book. Um, and then maybe you're going to understand... What it is that you put everyone else through in this, on this continent. There's a kind of justice. And the book has got some amazing steampunk moments in it. It's got, um, it's got tunneling machines that they use to go in and, uh, liberate the African Americans there and get them out of the way before the giant tank kind of destroys everything and rolls over the White House. Spoiler. So you basically have to read this book. It's a huge um, milestone in this type of uh, literature. Uh, it's just awesome. There's some great moments like that. The literary style again is kind of, uh, this is my second point, by the way. So we're, we're doing well. This is going to take forever. Um, the literary style again is like somewhat realistic, which is different to most of Moorcock's books. Uh, Michael Moorcock normally writes really bizarre books. Um, but strangely, this one has a lot of real stuff in it. There's, a, there's an invented relative, Grandpa Moorcock, who is the narrator of the first part of this book. And he, Grandpa Moorcock goes on a search through China, betraying a lot of his prejudices again, and meeting uh, one of the fictional characters before stumbling on a manuscript that's been left behind by the totally fictional hero, the real hero of the story, who's Oswald Bastable. Oswald Bastable is a completely fictional character who comes from a kid's book called The Treasure Seekers by E. Nesbitt. And more of that in just a minute. I've started reading that uh, story with my kids. Um, it's really incredible stuff. The style of it must have influenced Moorcock, I think, because um, it's got an unreliable narrator, narrator, and the style is just this fantastic long conversation with the reader. And it has no, um, it doesn't seem fake. It has no artificiality about it. It seems totally authentic, um, right down to all of the unreliable aspects that come in with time, uh, that come in with reading. And this is very much in the tradition of more kind of serious literature. So I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that Moorcock is serious literature it's uh, it's part of a grand tradition that's been neglected. Uh, but this used to be literature for serious people. This used to be books for fancy people. And it takes on this conceit. It's very artificial. of uh, Finding a, an old manuscript or a sort of diary or something and trying to make it seem historical. But Moorcock brilliantly turns it on its head and turns it into a kind of warning. It's a warning. It's like... Um, it's almost like the beat poets uh, telling everybody to watch out because uh, life is going to get crazy, and we better um, we better turn around. You know, it's almost kind of like in that tradition as well, sort of this hippie tradition. You could compare the literary aspects to stuff like Manzoni um, in *The Betrothed*, where he says it's all um, it's all based on historical documents that he found, or even *The Lord of the Rings* a little bit, where um tolkien name checks stuff like the red book uh which is a real collection of mythology in the welsh tradition kind of was a bit cheating kind of like stealing a little bit i think cultural appropriation is the word we have for it nowadays uh stealing from the welsh welsh tradition a little bit there but again there's not much we can do about that uh toxic englishness um is with us to stay but the the point is that this is not by no means just literature uh, for serious people. Um, Moorcock also was perfectly capable of writing in that style in the 70s. So um, it's doable. On that topic of toxic Englishness, by the way, I have been digging into constitutional law like you do. And uh, I wanted to share this... Uh, passage about what England is, and it might be a little shocking if there's any if there's any British listeners. I have I have no idea if anyone listens to this particular uh, podcast, but hey, look, if you do, can you can you get in touch? Let me know. Here's a quote from Constitutional and Administrative Law, Seventh Edition by John Adler. Uh, you can probably find this. It's a legal textbook. It is a university textbook, so it's by no means uh, radical stuff. Okay, page one hundred twelve. England, comprising 85% of the population of the UK, has neither elected institutions of its own nor a legal identity. I think that's... I can stop there, actually, can't I? There isn't... It has no legal identity. Just let that sink in. England is governed by the central UK government. Therefore, Scottish, Welsh and Northern Ireland members of the UK Parliament are entitled to vote in debates affecting exclusively English matters, for which they are not accountable to their own voters. Similarly, a UK government might be kept in power on the strength of Scottish votes. And it gives some examples of this. So um, basically England, for those, um, I'm I'm guessing everybody in the United States has no idea about this. England technically has no parliament of its own. Um, It is a shared parliament. It's a shared, um, what do you have in the United States? Do you have a congress? Um, In Germany, we have uh, a much, uh, sorry to say this, but a much better and a very logical system, which is actually very representative. In England, we don't even have that. Um, And that probably comes as a shock to any British listeners as well, uh, even those who do care about this kind of thing. And basically, it's the fact that people don't care that has kept this uh, situation going for a long time. And um, I think it puts in perspective a lot of the political stuff a lot of the struggles um that come out in moorcock's books as well basically england has no existence of its own per se um it has a little bit of this a little bit of that a little bit of everything <laughs> um except itself okay so um that's just a tangent but that we're going to come back to that so what are the themes of this book well moorcock uh talks about anarchism a lot um and I don't think that it's what you imagine as anarchism, if you're listening to this, because he comes out very clearly against blowing stuff up. Uh, let's put, let's say that straight away. Um, and it's also, it's also not chaos. Um, in Michael Moorcock's books, you've got law and you've got chaos, and very often the hero is on the side of chaos. But um, for example, in the short story, which I still haven't finished. Um, I haven't, haven't finished reading, but in this short story to defend, uh, to save Tanelorn, uh, Tanelorn is this mystical city of of rest where people can go heroes can go uh, to find rest after fighting on behalf of chaos, and it's pretty clear that they don't want to go back to that situation. Most of the time, what what people believe in or what they have to fight for is this balance between law and chaos, so We're definitely not talking about like just going on a rampage and messing stuff up. That is just chaos. And that is just, that is also bad. (laughs) That is wrong. Law for its own sake is also wrong. And I think that ties into this problem of uh, racism, which is in the book, and slavery. Racism and slavery are just wrong, are just bad. Um, And yet, in situations where Technically, those things have ended straight away. You found that you had these completely wrong laws, which effectively just kept the racism in place. Right. And I think anybody who knows American history is going to recognize that. But anybody who recognizes um, anybody who's read uh, about British history as well, the British Empire effectively had laws that were racist and laws that effectively were keeping slavery going. And those things didn't change uh, necessarily from the top down, although in law they did change. Those things improved by people like Martin Luther King and Loretta Scott King. I, sorry, I'm not going to call her uh, his wife because she she was a person in her own right. And you have these people who made change step by step, right? So you've got... Um, You've got this problem that you can't just impose good stuff from the top down. It just ain't going to work. You know, it works partially, but it ain't going to work. So th- these are the themes. And, um man, I think this book as well has a lot of scary stuff for today because we've got um, a lot of top-down stuff happening right now. We've got uh, pre-internet. Some of us can still remember <laughs> when uh, television was a big thing. And um, television maybe... Wouldn't have shown a lot of this stuff. There was a, there was a Michael Moorcock movie that was made of Jerry Cornelius, parts of it, I think. And that, that stuff would never get on television, right? But now you're seeing, uh, Moorcock TV shows being proposed. Who knows if they'll get off the ground. You've got stuff like, uh, The Witcher, which I believe is just basically, um, kind of a Michael Moorcock-influenced story, let's be fair. It's not totally ripped off, I guess, but come on. It's kind of ripped off, right? That wouldn't have happened without Elric, uh, all those stories. You can have those things now because we've got stuff like Netflix where everything is tailored to you and your preferences, right? And so, hey, look, isn't it great? Everything is um, everything's individual and everything's about your tastes which is cool, but that means that a lot of people who wouldn't necessarily get exposed to these things, they're missing out, right? Because now um, the mainstream is whatever you want it to be. So when are you, when are you ever going to get surprised by something? When are you ever going to um, just stumble across something and get that little bit of chaos that's needed to balance out the law? Anyway, so um we've covered racism is bad. Let me just say racism is bad. Can I just say that again? The whole um uh, worldwide empire thing. You know what? That's also bad. <laughs> and um the third thing is that even when even when um they get justice, okay? The African empire arises and they and they perfectly correctly say, "Hey, listen, we're going to go and free our um they're not, they're not Africans anymore. They're African Americans. We're going to go free them and bring about justice. And it's totally right that they do so, right? I mean, in the story, it's pretty darn clear. There's a war on basically, and they go and win the war unexpectedly and they free all of these people from a terrible, like really horrible regime in the United States. Again, please, hey guys in America, please read this book. It's very timely. So, um, even with that, Justice that they achieve through war, you get this understanding. Hey, it's not enough. And uh, Bastable, the British guy, feels uncomfortable because now he is the one that's being uh, discriminated against. He's okay for a white guy, you know, but he's being tolerated. Not he's not being loved. He's not being approved. And he still doesn't realize that the reason for this is hey, not because uh, European guys are better. It's just because. There's no justice, you know. There's no perfect justice, right? And ultimately, he has to be on the side of every human being. He can't just um, he can't just be British and loving it. That it just isn't good enough. Uh, but he doesn't know that yet. He has to go through some more crazy stuff, and he will. He will, uh, which is great. The next theme is he a nomad, as in the first book, uh, the Warlord of the Air. I would say he wasn't a nomad yet. He was merely a um, typical British guy getting thrown into a wild adventure. And that's cool. That was good enough. Um, But in the second book, Bastable has to go back and relive basically the same uh, stuff. Okay, (laughs) let's try and keep this more PG-13. The same stuff happens again, uh, but worse, basically much worse um, for him. And he gets to see it up close and personal this time. People are getting, you know, Um, trodden on and um, wars are being fought and it's terrible and he sees what happened to England because of all of this and it's terrible. Um, East Grinstead is now a kingdom of cannibals and Bastable has to actually kind of go and rescue but then get rescued by, really, um, Una Persson, who's one of these other recurring characters in Moorcock, like all of Moorcock's books. Um, so she rescues him basically, let's be honest. <laughs> and, um, now he's really a real nomad. Uh, cause he's going back to the same places again and again, all the same situations and the same kind of like history repeating. And each time is he learning? Well, maybe a little bit cause you know, makes it a story. He has to learn something every time there's kind of a ritual that's going on. That's another aspect here. um, And I love that that is uh, a trope in these sci-fi books, uh, fantasy books. This aspect of time travel actually isn't really um, time travel. Like in Back to the Future and stuff like that, you're always repeating the same history. You know, is there a reason for that, why we love those stories? Um, And it made me think, hey, this is a lot like, um, sorry to be pretty boring and mention this again. Bruce Chatwin, in his um, probably factually not great but poetically really great book, the songlines about um, native Australians. I hate calling those people Aboriginals. You know, they're they're people that have been there a long time, but I don't know how long. <laughs> that's what that's what that name means uh, from the beginning. Hey, look, they're native Australians. They're the Australian people who were living there before we we came and uh, took it over. That's all. So they have this incredible culture, and to this day, I'm not sure anybody um, outside of that culture even understands it, uh, a tiny bit of it. Um, But for sure, they travel around from place to place, and they attach a meaning to those places. Uh, Let's not take it any further, but um, there's something about going to places again and again, like familiar places, and like reliving the memory of those places. It's so basic. I won't say primitive, because... Hey, look, we're all primitive, um, but it's so like it's essential um, to do this uh, like a pilgrimage or like a, a wander around places and let yourself be surprised by stuff. Um, so I got into running in the last couple of years uh, again, back into running. Um, it's a really British uh, habit or tradition, whatever you want to call it. Um, before sports got all professional, definitely English people had a tradition of going on runs. I think not only English people. Oh my goodness! Like, <laughs> but especially this tradition of just amateur running, going for the sake of it, uh, off into the countryside, and getting a bit lost, maybe, and coming back and having fun doing that. And I, like most runners, I guess, especially like middle-aged guys, <laughs> having like a you know middle-aged crisis, or you you got to lose a bit of weight and that kind of stuff. um, I overdid it. And went too fast and too far. And I guess that's the same old story for a lot of people. Um, and I slowly discovered this movement, which is now coming around from Japan. It's slow jogging. It was started by a Japanese professor called Hiroaki Tanaka. Uh, oh, it says here a PhD, so I don't know. Was he a professor? <laughs> so, um, yeah, cool guy anyway. Um, he recommends taking it easy. Run with a smile, Nico Nico. And, you know, do a V sign, smile, and um, take it easy. Just enjoy running. Uh, It's all good advice about your form, your running uh, style, how your your foot lands on the front of the foot, midfoot, instead of on the heel, which is obviously good if you've ever gone running. (laughs) But also I found it cool that he recommends, uh, or they recommend, minimal shoes, which I totally got into as well. There is a whole thing around the tara umara, tribe, which I think is somewhere around Mexico. Um, again, I'm not going to claim to be an expert on any of this stuff. Um, but if you look those people up, that is also a really cool story. They're kind of barefoot or minimal shoe runners, maybe from necessity, right? I mean, all you have is sandals. And they just run for miles and miles and uh, uh, and apparently don't have the injuries that a lot of so-called professional runners uh, get. And so this slow running is about taking it easy um, and going at your own pace. I think this is really cool. There's no perfect speed to run. It's your pace. You've got to find your own way. And um, it even says in there, you know, enjoy the surroundings, enjoy being where you are. So it's kind of like a meditation almost. It's kind of like a Zen thing that's going on there. In Zen Buddhism, they have this tradition of like staring at a wall, which doesn't sound very exciting at all, I guess. But it's actually about becoming aware um, of the place and the time you're at right now, I guess. I mean, I'm I'm sure there's a lot more to it than that. But there's this kind of mystical thing there. Actually, that reminds me as well. In Zen Buddhism, they have this story that the founder of Zen was actually this real weirdo. Buddhism is a tradition which was obviously founded by the Buddha, right? Uh, the first Buddha. And actually, in the Nomad of the Time Streams book... Sorry, I'm going to get it back to the topic. Wow. The whole adventure starts off in the temple of the future Buddha, right? And that isn't a real place, but the future Buddha is a real thing, as I found. Um, so the Zen uh, tradition follows this strange figure who just appeared one day out of nowhere. Nobody knew where he came from. And he's even called like a barbarian, kind of like an outsider. So one day he, he turns up at this monastery and he has this habit of sitting staring at the wall and he's very strange and he has a weird kind of personality and in the end you know he vanishes again and the legends don't even tell where he went and i love that fact that he just vanishes off the scene um maybe chooses to go away so that people aren't kind of attached to him maybe but maybe more to the things that he could teach them it reminds me of the tradition as well and again you know tell me if i got this totally wrong and i'm totally happy to get it wrong But I think I read somewhere that Lao Tzu, the old man who um, is credited with the um, Taoist tradition or Taoist tradition in Chinese culture, which also had this huge effect on me when I was reading um, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, the Taoist thing is mentioned in there, again, probably getting it horribly wrong. But in Taoism, they have this tradition too, I think, that he also just... Vanished, you know, went outside of China as it was then and was never seen again. And there's this kind of aspect, I think, in the Nomad of the Time Streams book books where um, the hero is kind of thrown into the situation and then he just kind of vanishes out of it as cra- in a crazy way. Like in the first book, it's the explosion of the atomic bomb. In the second book, I don't even remember, but it's equally... Um, I think it's the atomic bomb again. Yeah, this time they drop it on the Russian um, so-called socialists who actually want to take over uh, the world. And um, so this whole project of empire starts again. And of course, the atomic bomb hits again. And I think at this point, it's a good uh, moment to go really serious and read the introduction of the book again. So here it comes. Dear reader, One of my favorite childhood writers was E. Nesbitt, creator of the new Treasure Seekers, The Railway Children, Five Children and It, and Oswald Bastable. I'm going to interrupt uh, Moorcock there to mention, if there's any British uh, listeners, maybe there's like one person, okay? You've probably heard the Five Children and It stories, because they were turned into a TV show. Anyway, um, a really cool TV show with bad special effects and weird little puppet things. Okay, back to the introduction. Nesbitt was a socialist, a Fabian, a friend of H.G. Wells, G.B. Shaw and others. Her wit, irony and common sense and humanity informed her stories, especially those about Oswald Bastable, who was probably the first unreliable narrator, narrator I had encountered. It seemed to me that she put the very best of herself into those books, and I continue to value them for the way she made me see things freshly without ever appearing to preach. It's cool. You really have to read this. Okay, sorry. With Rich Mal Com- Crompton's William stories, E. Nesbit's are among the few books specifically published for children that I remember enjoying. <laughs> sorry to interrupt again, but that is really funny. Kids' books can be so bad when they're written for kids and so, so good when they're just really good books. Okay, back to Moorcock, sorry. I've always had an enthusiasm for late Victorian and Edwardian fiction and look forward to a time when Arthur Morrison, W. Pet Ridge... Israel, Zangwil, Zangwill, Zangwil, and many others will at least be represented by a paperback or two. We let too much that is good and valuable in our culture slip away from us and almost vanish. We are inclined to mock writers for their cliches, when in fact they were the first to solve their technical problems. I have a feeling that Moorcock is writing about himself here. Okay, sorry for the interruption. In fact, they were the first to solve their technical problems with methods which only became cliches, in the hands of later people. Interruption again, sorry. So the dynamic quality tends to turn into static quality, guys. If you read your Robert M. Pizik, Leela, you're going to know this. Okay. To read them in the context of their times is perhaps a little paradoxically to appreciate them as they were when they were first popular. I'm a huge admirer of Shaw and Wells, and while I never quite accepted their particular politics, I find it difficult to understand why Supposedly because of the fall of the Eastern autocracies, so many people now patronize, patronize socialism as if it were merely an aberration or a wrong path. So Moorcock is not a communist, by the way. He's saying, like, dude, that communism was bad. Okay, as I suggested to John Major when he told us that socialism was dead, he should not be too triumphant. After all, until his predecessor revived it, we thought feudalism pretty much over and done with too. Paternalism and centralism, the bane of capitalist as well as socialist politics, are for me the permanent enemy of democracy. It was my wariness of paternalism, especially as it is these days applied. Interruption. He was writing in the 1970s, by the way. As Bluestocking pointed out very rightly, the Vietnam War. Okay. It was my wariness of paternalism which inspired this sequence. Paternalism and its associated centralism still deeply infects much of our modern political thinking. Interruption. I'd like to add economic thinking maybe too. Okay. Apart from Prince Kropotkin, that mostly that most kindly of anarchist intellectuals, few of the great thinkers and artists of Wells' days, including Wells, perceived or wished to examine what Rosa Luxemburg was to perceive and for which she was attacked with brutal rhetoric by much of the orthodox left that their social solutions, however well meant, however they hoped to achieve the millennium, to give self-respect to minorities and the poor, were always doomed while they kept to their prescriptions. Still later, Orwell was attacked by the left for pointing this out, and most recently, Andrea Dworkin has received similar criticism for refusing to accept the consensual, easier view. If we continue to make any sort of social progress, I suspect that the political battle lines of the 21st century will not be between socialism and capitalism, but democracy and paternalism. The answer to paternalistic socialism, characterized, characteristic of almost all socialist states, is not laissez-faire capitalism, or centralised corporatism or monetarism, with all their attendant ills and intrinsic injustices, but real equality under the law, where all of us have equal voice, equal access to our democratic institutions, and equal responsibility. I'm going to just interrupt again, because this is a huge piece of uh, wordage to deal with, right? Uh, So maybe you need to read the book. (laughs) Um, I'm not ashamed to say that this foreword is one of the best things I've read. Uh, It's two pages out of a cool adventure story, but it is awesome. Like, I can reread it again and again. Okay. Sadly, some of our democratic infrastructure in our society seems seriously under threat at present is often attacked in the name of freedom, by which is usually meant freedom of choice of washing powder or telephone company or porn video. And it is up to us, I think, to examine those institutions, remember why they were developed in the first place, and perhaps protect them. I'd just like to stop here again. If you read American history, I mean, that is wild stuff. Some of the American institutions were set up in the most incredible ways. It's like an adventure story on its own. Even if you read the most boring American history, wow. (laughs) Okay, Um, forget about alternative history. Just read real American history. Okay, almost finished, promise. These three simple stories, (laughs) they're not that simple. These three simple stories attempted to explore some of the ideas, especially about imperialism and racialism. Those are bad, by the way, which I have explored in different ways in my Jerry Cornelius and Colonel Piat books. The influence is also my homage to those not quite forgotten writers of pre-1914 Britain, whose humanity, curiosity, and urgent sense of justice make their work as relevant and as entertaining to our time as it was to theirs, and is dedicated with respect to W. Pet Ridge, author of Maud Emily, and to Pet, his son, it's Maud Emily, sorry, I'm not sure what that is, going to have to read it whose interest in these books will probably have less to do with their didacticism than with their aeronautical credibility. Yours, Michael Moorcock. P.S. Since this was written, *Maud Emily has been reprinted by Robin Clark Limited. I'm sorry I read out the whole preface, and you can let me know if there's any issue with that, but um, it's a quotation, and I believe that American law might allow me to do quotations, and also I was commentating a lot of it, Let's call it commenting. This uh, series is actually like a Russian novel, basically. If you've never read Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov, I totally get it. I totally know why. (laughs) I totally understand why. That is a tough book. Um, But it is worth it because um, the characters are so cool. Strangely, it is an adventure story, actually. One of the heroes goes off on a terrible event, like horrible adventure, um, to Siberia. And, um, all three of the brothers, uh, in the title actually have adventures kind of, and the whole huge book takes place over, I think it's like one day, which I think is just the coolest thing. If you're going to write a novel, write it in real time, guys, come on (laughs) people write it in real time as if you're actually like reporting every minute of the day. And if you can make it exciting, which I think he does, then you achieve something and Dostoevsky never wrote book two. It was all meant to be a lead up to book two. Um, and it just ends on this huge cliffhanger of what's the hero actually going to do after all this huge build up, right? So again, you know, a shout out to Patrick Rothfuss. Would you, you know, don't don't take all your time, man. Finish your book before you die, please. Because look what happened to Dostoevsky. Come on, that's a big cliffhanger there he left us with. Uh, take your time. Do it right. But still. Okay. Okay. So what, what, what have I taken away from this, uh, pulp adventure? Um, are about small stories. So Bastable in these books, he's meant to be, uh, an army man. Okay. He's meant to be a soldier, but he hardly ever gets into a fight. He's really bad as well. Like when he tries to hijack the airship in the first story, in the second story, Bastable is mainly kind of like, dragged along <laughs> he manages to rescue una person that's about all he does at the start of the book from these english uh, savages uh, who are gonna like murder her or sacrifice her or something he does rescue her um and then it turns out that he was being a total idiot because he he can't possibly fight uh, a village full of uh, english savages so he basically has to make a run for it and una person gets him out of it with her tunneling machine the rest of the time, he's basically kind of used as a token European guy, um, and the real hero, actually, of the story. Um, yes, obviously, it's um, it's the land, uh, it's the um, the African uh, Robin Hood, the Black Attila, who rescues uh, the African Americans. But the real hero, kind of, in my opinion, is Gandhi, uh, who appears in this alternate history. As the president of Bantustan, it's this English, uh, it's this Indian republic and they're completely peaceful. They have a huge army and a navy, but those things are set up in order to evacuate in case of war. So like their plan is basically like look very tough, but don't, uh, don't start any wars, which is kind of what we should do, right? (laughs) That's what we should actually do. We, uh, we need to get better at that. Um, that, that's the hero of the story. It's actually Gandhi. And he's kind of in there secretly, kind of secretly, right? In this story, there's no Martin Luther King because there was a terrible, um, apocalypse. But there's Gandhi and he has this nonviolent civilization in the story. And at at least until the end of the story, it's actually kind of a success because everybody knows that Gandhi is this great uh, president. He has a good, um, relationship with different uh countries, even if he doesn't agree with their philosophy, like this African uh em- empire that's gonna take over the United States, well he kind of works together with them even though he doesn't he doesn't actively take over any other countries. And his secret plan, it's actually a secret, uh is just to attack uh just to run away, sorry, just to evacuate, um in the circumstance of an attack. So He's actually played kind of close to the real to reality, uh, this non-violent approach, um, at the same time as kind of being a peacemaker as much as possible in a in a crazy world. Um, and I love that. I love that that's in there. This was written in the '70s, '80s. So to put that in there was pretty was pretty radical actually. Um, but the real um, the real lesson is that this personal responsibility, and this comes up. Even more clearly at the end of um, Book Three, um, the real secret is the the personal responsibility and where your loyalties lie, and that's very much the pulp kind of ethos, right? Indi- Indiana Jones, he's a he's a great American, he's a patriot, um, he's uh, been a soldier, and that kind of stuff, right? But look at what he cares about. He cares about putting cool stuff into museums where it belongs, where people can uh, appreciate it, where it's it's part of everybody's history. You know, it's not just for some. It's not just for some grave robber. Okay, although Indy is kind of a grave robber. Okay, <laughs> but let's not go there again. He wants to put the stuff in the museum at least. You know, it belongs to everybody, and. Indy will fight to save you uh, just because you're you, right? So at the end of the uh, second book of Nomad of the Time Streams, the uh, hero says, One day I'll probably go back to Tekubenga and enter that passage again. Hope that it will take me through to a world where I am known, where my relatives will recognize me and I them, where the good old British Empire continues on its placid, decent course. He hasn't quite realized yet that this is just not going to happen. And the threat of a major war is very remote indeed. Well, that sounds better. It's not much to hope for, Moorcock, is it? Well, yes, it is kind of a lot, yeah. Okay, let let me let him speak, sorry. And yet, just as I feel a, a peculiar loyalty to you to try to get this story to you somehow, like Hurd or even Gandhi, not to one nation, one world, or even one period of history, my loyalty is at once to myself and to all mankind. It's hard for me to explain, for I'm not a thinking man. And I suppose it looks pretty silly written down, but I, I hope you'll understand. This is a great way to put that message across because the message is, it is, it is silly when you write it down um, and it's sentimental, right? But uh, pulp writers know that small is beautiful. I wrote that down. Um, there's an economist called uh, Schumacher, Schumacher, who uh, wrote a book called Small is Beautiful. And I think it's even more relevant today um, when everything is getting bigger and bigger. But pulp writers, adventure story writers, appeal to that side of me, (laughs) which is just willing to see everything as an adventure on my good days. And um, the other thing that pulp writers love is alternate histories and how stuff might have turned out different. And oh boy, is it going to turn out different um, in the next book. We've had a gigantic tank. Um, and this thing is—it's—it's it's bigger than the White House. Okay, <laughs> um, I haven't seen anything. This—I guess you see this kind of stuff in sci-fi movies all the time, and we've kind of gotten bored of it. Um, but the giant kind of city-sized tank in this story is pretty—is pretty rad. If you—if you read the book, at the time it—it it was um, solving those problems in the narrative for the first time, and it's become a cliche. But if you sort of imagine this giant mechanical pyramid, which can just roll around and has so many guns all over it, that it's just, it's just impossible to beat this thing. And if it comes to your town, you're going to know about it just before it squashes your town. That's the kind of thing that we're talking about. Uh, before Star Wars came along and all those movies with big stuff in them, this is pretty big. Um, and it gets crazier in the next book. So things, things should be crazy in a story. And I wanted to mention this in the lost episode too. Stephen Jay Gould was another great scientist. Um, evolutionary stuff is what he did. Um, and he hated uh, this narrative where evolution just goes in a straight line. Everything gets better and better. And by better, we mean um, European stroke, Western stroke, whatever. People get more and more in the center of things. And um, that's just wrong. Um, Evolution doesn't work like that. It works through a series of accidents and crazy, strange um, coincidences and stuff that just happens. You know, asteroids and meteors crashing into the earth and um, weird creatures uh, suddenly emerging. So in the Burgess Shale, that's what he wrote about a lot. Um, In a book called Wonderful Life, uh, he explains how you found these bizarre creatures in a specific bunch of rocks called the Burgess Shale. And none of them have uh, survived, but they could have. (laughs) That's the point, right? They were crushed by some mud. And if it hadn't been for that accident, we could have had these totally bizarre looking creatures wandering around or just any kind of weird creatures for large periods of Earth's history. But instead, we got dinosaurs and stuff. And a lot of it is down to chance and statistics. Um... And so we shouldn't be so sure of our place in history because it ain't, it ain't a given that that was his message. And I think it's, it's scientifically sound. So being open to adventures and being open to like weird stuff happening, spontaneous stuff happening, even like very kind of uh, mundane, spontaneous stuff. Like most of the cool music I'm into. um, I just found it in charity shops for the American listeners. That's thrift stores, but you just got to, go out there and find stuff. And you can't do that on the internet because it is centralized, heavily centralized. You've got to go out and look for old tapes and CDs and stuff. Like there's some cool stuff on tape, which I'm sure you cannot find. You can't find it on the internet, right? You have to go and find that old tape again. Someone in someone's attic, in someone's loft, at some kind of like, uh, at some kind of sale, yard sale or something. You cannot find it on the internet. But wouldn't it be cool if we could play back the tape of history and imagine what stuff would have happened if we'd have kept that old tape, or if we found that old journal that's lost in the in the in the loft in the attic? Play back the tape. That was Steve, Stephen Jay Gould's idea, you know. Play back evolution. What would have happened if those creatures hadn't got squashed by the rocks? Um, Piers Anthony, on his good days, he wrote some good books, or like not so bad books. Like most of his books are bad. Don't read them. But um, he did, he did one called uh, Macroscope, I think, where he does imagine what would have happened if the Burgess Shale animals, creatures, had evolved. And they're these weird kind of alien-looking things. And that's just like one possibility out of millions. Um, that is it, yeah. We we live in this monoculture now, and it, it's so boring. And it's an illusion. It's just an illusion, actually. If you just step outside of it and go uh, bargain hunting in the thrift stores or whatever or just, like, wander off the beaten track, you can imagine what might have been. So, Michael from Germany, signing off uh, from the Nomad of the Time Streams episodes of the Bibliophile Adventures. You can find me on Twitter. Find me on Twitter. Take it easy. See you in the Time Streams.